small. We are a a little people. (laughs) And we often feel, Father, like we don't have a whole lot of strength. And we have just enough sometimes to get through each day. But Father, being a person of little strength, it's not such a bad thing when I have a Father like you. A God who is so big and great and able to defeat the foe. To take out the enemy and to, to deliver me, Father, as you have delivered us all from sin and invited us into positions of priests in training for your kingdom. And when we truly stop, Father, and consider ourselves, as David said, what is man? What is man? Who are we, Lord, that you would choose to visit us in this barn tonight? Just a small people with little strength. Who love to be in your presence. Fathers, we continue to worship you in your word. I pray that you would transform our hearts yet again tonight. Continue the process, Father, of leading us through the wilderness and into the promised land. Continue, Lord, the development and the training and and the knowledge. And conform us Father, to your will. Transform us, as Paul wrote, by the renewing of our minds. And lead us, Father, out of our smallness, from your glory to your glory, into into your greatness, into the presence of who you are. Holy Spirit, I ask that your words would be spoken tonight with clarity and that you would imprint the written and spoken word on our hearts tonight. And as we seek to see you in the scriptures and and God to understand you, that our hearts might be enlarged just by contemplating you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight that this prayer will be ongoing, that as we study, there will be communication happening between us and you. And as we think through these thoughts that are going to be shared, we think them through with you. And we listen to your Spirit speaking to us. For Father, as I have learned over the years, there are things you will speak tonight to the hearts of those in this place that will not come out of my mouth. Things that need to be heard that I won't say. Things that will be understood that I have not explained. And that is the wonder and the power and the beauty of your word, Father, and your spirit working in concert to reveal more of yourself to us. We thank you. We thank you for being here. 
We thank You, Father, for just continuing to show up. And we are blessed by You. You are so good. And we thank You for touching our lives as You have. Father, now teach us. We pray, O precious Savior, in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we're in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7. And I want to launch right into it. And though I know she doesn't want any appreciation for it, I, I sure do appreciate you, Barb. And I sure appreciate just the the way you play in the spirit. It means a lot. Doesn't isn't it just wonderful to have her just play and oh. I, I wanna drag this piano down to the pond. <laughs> and when I go down there, I want you just to play. Can we work that out? I'll get someone Russ can drag it down there he'll do that let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 Deuteronomy chapter 7 beginning in verse 1 when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Now again, as we spoke on Sunday, as we saw, Moses says, not if, but when. When the Lord brings you into the land, and that's an important distinction because God will do it. It's not a possibility. It's not even a promise anymore. It's an absolute. It's a truth. This is going to happen. But right away here in verse 2, there's a two-part hand-in-hand process described that's very interesting to me. Interesting because of what it means for Israel, but also interesting because of what it means for us. Now I want to remind you, if you haven't taken a look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Holy Spirit speaks through Paul and gives us a, a wonderful understanding of the reason for the entire Old Testament. The things that are pictures in the Old Testament become clear in the New Testament. They're principles to live by. We can look at Old Testament stories and understand by what God does with Israel exactly what He's doing with you and with me. And this process God is taking Israel through is very much applicable to us as well. God will deliver, but Israel must destroy. God will deliver, but Israel must destroy. These seven specific nations are described as greater and stronger than Israel. These seven nations, uh, they're a picture of all of the land of Canaan and all the nations that Israel will go up against. But they're all greater and they're stronger. And God will deliver them into the hands of Israel, but He leaves it to Israel to destroy them. Not just to defeat them, but to take them out. If you've been watching the last several weeks, 34 days I believe it was, that Israel went into Lebanon and tried to take out Hezbollah. And their, their intention at the beginning was to destroy Hezbollah's ability to attack them. To literally take them out. I don't believe that objective was obtained. 
And if you're watching the news right now, you would think that Hezbollah had some massive victory in overtaking Israel. In fact, it's interesting, some of the most vocal proponents and supporters of of Hezbollah, Syrian President Assad and Iranian puppet Prime Minister Ahmadinejad, they're claiming historic victory over Israel in the news this week. Ahmadinejad, he says, God's promises have come true. He spoke this to a large crowd in northwestern Iran. He said, on one side, it's corrupt powers of the criminal U.S. and Britain and the Zionists with modern bombs and planes. And on the other side is a group of pious youth relying on God. Launching Katusha missiles into innocent towns. There is a reason for sound and complete defeat. Now, speaking in the flesh here, just for a moment, I often think that when it comes to battles in today's world, we would do a whole lot better if we were more like Alexander the Great or Nebuchadnezzar. When you go to fight a nation, you just wipe them out, you move in, and you take it over. Because all of the stuff that we try to do politically today, and I'm not all into war and murder and bloodshed, but understand what we try to do today does not work. We are embroiled in Iraq. And we will be because we tried to go into a nation and rather than conquer, we tried to conquer but give it back. Which I'm not saying anything political about again. But it's not working real well right now. Israel tried to go in just to a buffer into Lebanon just enough to take out Hezbollah. It's not working. And so there is something to this idea of absolute defeat, and that's what God tells Israel to do when they're going back into the land. Absolute defeat. You don't leave anything standing. I'm going to deliver them to you, but you kill everything in your path. Everything, which would include men and women and children. And this is the part of the Old Testament that especially liberal theologians just don't like. That God would actually say, go into the land and wipe out all of the people, even the little ones. And many people would say that's unethical for a loving God. How could a loving God command such a thing? How could he do such a thing? This can't work. The God of the New Testament, God of the Old, must be two separate gods. Or something happened. Maybe God just developed and learned and grew and changed. The problem is the Bible tells tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing has changed with God and his perspective, only with man. But Moses, right off the bat here, gives Israel several, several sound and godly reasons for this absolute defeat, for the utter destruction that they are called to. And the first one is simply this. The people in the land deserved to die for their sins. They deserved it. This wasn't like some innocent people. They deserved what God called out for them, that they must be utterly destroyed. In the Bible Knowledge Commentary, we're told that studies of the religion, literature, and archaeological remains reveal that the people in the land of Canaan were the most morally depraved culture on earth at that time or any time. They were sick. They were so twisted that they even were sacrificing their own children on altars to gods like Molech. This was a very sick people. And God, as it were, was putting them out of their misery. He was shooting the rabid dog. He was taking out a group that would not come back from the depth of their sin. They deserved to die for their sins. Look over in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 4 and verse 5. Listen to what Moses says here. He says, Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. 
It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. That's why they were driven out. Not because Israel was so great, so wonderful, so good, but because these nations that were already there were so bad. He says in verse 5, It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They deserved to die for their sins. They did. That's just the simple truth of the matter. Secondly, they doggedly despised the Lord. They despised the Lord. They would have nothing to do with the Lord. In other words, they rejected repentance. God had given them, as we've talked about many times before, 400 years to repent of their sin. While Israel was down in Egypt, the people of Israel down there protected and away from the situation, God gave the inhabitants of the land of Canaan 400 years. And had they repented, God would have forgiven them. You may draw your minds back. Genesis 15, 16. God is talking to Abraham and he says in the fourth generation... Your children, the Israelites, will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now you might say, okay, Rick, you assume God was offering the opportunity of repentance to unrepentant Gentile nations. And this is something that people kind of miss sometimes. As we read and we study the history of God's working with Israel, we assume that he was blind to the rest of the world. He was not. He was working with, in his own way, in different ways, Gentile nations as well, to bring them to repentance. How can you say that? Well, we have proof of it in the Bible. Specifically, we see a Gentile nation called Nineveh. Nineveh was not Jewish. Nineveh was originally founded by Nimrod, and it was a Gentile nation. And God said to Jonah, a Jewish prophet, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell the people to repent, because I want to save them. And Jonah had a huge problem with it. When we eventually get to the book of Jonah, it's a fascinating study. But Jonah had a problem with it. The whole book. He ran. He went in the opposite direction. And it wasn't because he was scared to prophesy. It was because he did not want the people of Nineveh to be saved. He didn't want that. God did. Because the Lord continues to work even outside of Israel prior to Jesus' coming. God was still working in Gentile nations to try and bring them to repentance. And Jesus says in Matthew 12.41 of his own people, he says the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So after 400 years... The people in the land of Canaan refused to repent. They doggedly denied the Lord God. And third reason why God says wipe them out completely is their disease was a disease of degradation. You could put it this way. They were a moral cancer on the land. Literally eating each other alive. I had a Toyota Corolla S5. Great little car. We called it the maggot. It was... Pretty small, little white car, little yellow stripe along the side of it. And I was proud of that car. And I got out to college in Texas and I began to notice something behind the two front tires on both sides on the bumpers. Or on the, on the um, what's the little part that goes over the wheels? The wheel well. The wheel well, thank you. Little part, wheel, okay. Goes over the wheel well, in the back, right behind the tire, a little spot of rust appeared. I wasn't too concerned about it. I was in college, I had other things to be concerned about. And the rust began to grow and grow and grow. And so intelligently, I went out and I bought some rust oleum. And I just sprayed it on. And I left it. That'll take care of it. 
and the rust continued to grow and grow and grow. Ultimately, I had to replace the entire front end of the car because it got so bad, it just kept degrading, and, and rust will do that, and that's what was happening in the land. In fact, skip over to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 18. Actually, verse 17. Deuteronomy 20.17 The Lord says, You shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God commanded you, so that they may not teach you to do to all according... all their de- de- Let me get this again. They may not teach you according to all their detestable things which they have done for their God so that you would sin against the Lord your God. If you don't wipe them out, they will begin to corrupt you. If you don't completely take them out, they will be, as to you, a cancer in the land, and you will begin to get sick, which, by the way, is exactly what happened to Israel. Even a child of this people had the potential of introducing an immorality capable of spreading rapidly among the Israelites. And the Lord indicates that whatever is not defeated among the Canaanites is going to be a problem for you down the line so defeat them soundly the Lord says I'll deliver but you must defeat them and destroy them completely and this principle relates so well to our sin it relates to our sin now before I get there one more comment about small children to take out a child of four or five six years old from among the Canaanites to us would be awful from a God's eye perspective it saved them for all eternity It brought them into the place of blessing. Had they been allowed to live and grow up in Canaan with the type of lifestyle that was all around them and the sickness and the sin, they would have gone right in the same direction as their parents and they would not have been saved. And so it was an amazing act of mercy on the part of the father to say, wipe them all out. God will deliver from sin. But where we come into this is gang, we have a hand in it as well. Oh, not in saving ourselves, not in our own righteousness. God's grace is what saves us. But gang, we do have a hand in handling our sin in our lives. Genesis chapter 4 verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, Cain? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, without reading anything into it, listen to what God says to Cain. Sin is at the door. You've got to master it, Cain. You must control it. The King James Version translates it, Unto thee shall be its desire, and you shall rule over it. You have the power over sin, and that power is your choice. And Paul puts it this way in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. In other words, we are invited to participate in righteousness. We are made righteous, saved by the work of God, by the work of Jesus on the cross, but we're invited to participate in that righteousness. We have a role to play. Like Israel, God says, I'm going to deliver you from sin, but you've got to defeat it. Fight it. Beat it back. Defeat it soundly. When the battle is raging and the enemy is looming, the Lord will deliver me to victory, but He wants me to engage in the battle. He wants me to fight. He wants me to be a part of the process. Flip over to Romans chapter 6 for just a moment. 
Romans chapter 6 in your Bibles. Verse 6. Paul is talking about this exact process that God has called us into. And he says, let's go back to verse 5. He says, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so, we would, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. You might say, well, why do I still sin? You still sin because we're fighting that sin nature, but you've been freed from it. It doesn't have the dominion over you that it had when you were outside of Christ. It still calls at you, it still goes after you, but it cannot affect you, it cannot draw you down the way it did outside of Christ. Paul says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not, therefore, verse 12, let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For Verse 14. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. Sin is not your master any longer when you are under grace. You do have authority over it. Choice, power to fight it, to combat it. And whatever the sin struggle may be in my life, once I've been crucified with Christ, it does not dominate me any longer. Paul says again in verse 14 in the King James Version, says, Sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin does not have dominion. It can still tempt, it can still call out, it can still invite, but it cannot dominate you. I don't have to give in. So what do we do, going back to Deuteronomy 7, when the pressure of sin is intense? When it's calling out very loudly and it's hard to hear the voice of God and it's hard to hear the Spirit. How do I handle sin, deal with sin, when it is intense? Verse 3 of chapter 7. Furthermore, he says, You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons. Nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. This is not a statement, by the way, against racial marriage. But the principle is about spiritual things. Spiritual mixed marriages. Spiritual mixed relationships. The Bible says to Amos 3.3, Can two walk together except they be agreed? 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The issue, gang, it's compromise. It's compromise. How do we combat sin? We don't compromise. Because sin starts early and it degrades slowly. Verse 5 going on, the Father says, Thus you shall do to them, you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire something that would not be completely done until King Josiah comes along generations later 
after they go in and they wipe out the people, not all the people, they just get most of the people, they still leave some, and it's a constant problem for Israel. But they don't wipe out the high places, and they don't cut down the ashram poles, and they don't tear and smash away the sacred pillars. Not enough. They leave just enough, and it does become a snare for the people. And all this sounds extreme. God saying absolute destruction, utter decimation, and even take down all the things that, le- that they've left behind. But if it sounds extreme, understand this. God has always been extremely concerned with the well-being of His people. Now watch this. Verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And the Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Israel's always been small. They've always been a little people. But, verse 8, because the Lord loved you. Now stop right there because there's something very interesting that God just said. And you've got to reread it to consider it, to think about it. Back in verse 7, it says, The Lord did not set His love on you because you were big. He, verse 8, set His love on you because He loved you. In other words, God loves you because God loves you. If you want to understand that, it, it can't be any more simple. Why does God love me? Because He loves you. What? It, what? God loves me because He loves me? That's just circle logic. It, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe not in human terms. But Moses says, The Lord did not love you, Israel, because you were great. He loved you because He loved you. Period. He just loves you. And it's not because of anything you've done. And the Lord loves us for one reason alone. Just because He does. Isn't that great? It's not dependent on what you do. It's not dependent on how you live or how you impress God or how great you become in the kingdom. He just loves you. Because He does. It's like two kids arguing. You know how kids will do that. Why, why are you doing that? Because. Because why? Because. Because why? Because. And that's exactly what God says about His love. Why do you love me, God? Because because I love you. Yeah, but why? Because I love you. I'm saying this over and over because we've got to get this in. Christianity is not performance-based because God loved us before we accepted Him. He loved us first. As the children's song goes, because He first loved me. Oh, how I love Jesus. He started the whole thing. He came after me. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. You said we had responsibility regarding sin. Just a moment ago, that's right. We are called to a responsibility to drive out the sin in our lives. But that's not bearing on God's love for us. Our decisions affect our lives. They don't change His love. Our decisions impact our future, but they still never negate His love. Do you realize that even those who choose to reject the Lord are still loved by the Lord? That we talk about it, we get real black and white, we talk about it in terms of those who are the saved and those who are lost, and those who are lost, man, they're going to burn in hell. And the Lord is sorrowful over that fact. It breaks His heart. When He looks at the sin and degradation in the world right now, stuff that we look at and we just get disgusted. Oh, I can't believe what they're... They just made a movie out of that? Oh, I can't believe the song I just turned on the radio. It was sick. It was awful. I was watching the news the other day and this guy was saying, oh, it's just ridiculous. And we get angry and our anger at sin translates toward the people and God loves that person. God absolutely loves Courtney Love. He loves her. 
She disgusts me. But he loves her. She has rejected him by all counts. But he loves her. You can pick out anybody in the world who you think is just sick and twisted. And you know what? People in the church calling Ellen DeGeneres Ellen Degenerate. And maybe it's an earned title. But he loves her. He loves her. And then if I could learn to look at people the way God does, I'd be a whole lot more loving. If I could stop being so judgmental, and the reality is I'm not called to be the judge, that's Jesus' job. I'm just called to love. And it doesn't matter if someone's chosen to accept Jesus or not. I am called to love. Perhaps through that love, maybe they will come to know the love of the Lord. The whole point of the cross is forgiveness before sin. Paul says, Romans 5.8, the verse that should be implanted in all our heads, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While I was degenerate, Jesus died for me. Before I ever made a decision for Him. And when it comes to salvation, gang, we choose it or we lose it, but it does not alter the love of the Father. I've said this before, there's going to be one person throughout all eternity that does not forget all those who are lost, and that's the Lord. The Bible says that the former things won't be remembered anymore. That the pain and the sorrow and the hurting and the things that that we struggle with in our memories, that's all going to be gone. God's going to graciously take that away and remove that. But He won't forget. Not a person. Not a name. Not any one individual who was lost. God won't forget. That's how great His love is. And those who have no use for the Old Testament today, citing that God was too brutal, they miss this important truth. Every single thing He did, even with regards to the Canaanites, He did for love. It's always driven by the love of the Father. In 1 John, and I'll just read this to you, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Down in verse 16, he writes, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. That God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. And there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Sometimes I fear that we have been at this love thing so long as Christians. If you've gone to church for any amount of time, and especially if you grew up going to church, you've heard the love verses given over and over, the first John four, seven and eight, spoken again and again and again, and so love just becomes kind of something that we shelve. Oh, I learned that in Sunday school. Oh, I learned that when I first became a Christian, but now I'm really into the judgment verses, you know. I'm moving on. And yet the most powerful thing that we have as believers is love. It's to love God and to love people. The two greatest commandments on which everything else hangs, Jesus said, is love for the Father and loving people. It is all about love. You may have heard the old story about John. The church tradition tells us that the Apostle John, back when he was very, very old, would sit in the back of the church there in Ephesus. And at the end of each service together, at the end of each fellowship, they always felt obliged to have John come up and say a few words. 
After a while, John came up and every single time he would walk slowly up to the front, taking his time to get there, turn around, face the fellowship and say, little children, love each other. Then he would shuffle his way back and sit down again. And after a while, the younger ones in the congregation began to get a little tired of this. Tired of John, little children love each other, that's all he would say. And one particular meeting, after he was done saying, little children love each other, he went to the back and some of the young men confronted him and said, John, you walked with Jesus. I mean, you were with him, face to face. You saw the revelation. You experienced all these fantastic things. Isn't there something more you can tell us than little children love each other? Isn't there another word of wisdom? And John just smiled and said, little children, when you love each other, I'll stop saying little children love each other. That's what it's all about. God loves us because He loves us. That's the deal. But He also loves us because God is faithful. Go back to chapter 7, verse 8. He says He loves us because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. He just keeps loving and loving and loving. Why? Because He loves and because He is so faithful. And I'm getting to the point where every single wedding I perform the vows become more and more important. When I first did weddings as a, as a young youth pastor, and I would do weddings for friends or family or whatever, I, I just kind of go through the vows, and I was always trying to contemporize them and make them a little easier, you know. And The longer I do it, the more important I recognize these things to be. And if I could say anything to troubled marriages, I would say this. Why don't you go back to your vows? Why don't you start by looking at what you vowed to each other? God is the covenant keeper. God is the faithful vow keeper. We said we'd love, honor, and cherish. Do it. We, we said in sickness and in health. We said till death do us part. Vows. Now we're not great at keeping vows. Which is why the divorce rate is what it is today. And it's why our marriages struggle at all. Because we forget those vows. But the Lord doesn't forget His vows. God is faithful and He loves us because He is faithful. He's the lover of our souls. He's the keeper of oaths. And it's from this place that Moses then continues to issue some warnings. Verse 10 going on. He says that God repays those who hate Him to their faces. That word there probably should be to His face. More literally translated, He repays those who hate Him to His face, who get all up in His face. By the way, I mentioned Nimrod a few minutes ago, back in, in Genesis chapter 10 or so, and, uh, and before that, talks about Nimrod, this mighty hunter before the Lord, that word before, and the word here where we see there, it's the same word, the word means to get up into your face. Nimrod was a mighty hunter in the face of the Lord, up in the face of the Lord, rebelling against the Lord. And Moses here says, he repays those who hate him that way, to his face, to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. And verse 11 says, therefore you shall keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. Now hang on a minute. Again, this sounds conditional. Does God love me because he loves me or not? Is he going to love Israel here if they keep his commandments, but not love them if they don't keep his commandments? No, he's going to destroy them if they don't keep his commandments, but he's still going to love them. 
He's going to drive them out of the land because they failed to keep their part of the covenant, but He still is going to love them as seen in a greater covenant made with Abraham that promises that the people would come back to the land eventually. But here's the key for us. God loves me, but I don't have to live in that love. He loves me. He is faithful to me, but I get to choose whether or not I want to live under that. I don't have to. Nobody has to. Verse 12 going on. says, It shall come about because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them that the Lord your God will keep with you His covenant and His loving kindness which He swore to your forefathers. Verse 13, this is a great verse. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land which He swore to your forefathers to give you J. Vernon McGee put it this way. He said, I can move out from under the spout where the blessings come out. I really like that. I have that choice. There is a spout from which the blessings come out. And I can stand under it and I can get drenched. And I can get soaked with the blessings and the love of God. If I stay under the spout, I don't have to stay there. I can move out from the spout where the blessings come out. And Jude would put it this way, verse 21 of the book of Jude, he says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And the blessing and the fruitfulness and the riches, and I'm not just talking finances, but the joy of the Lord will be yours if you keep yourselves in the love of God. It doesn't mean His love is earned. It doesn't mean that His love is merited. It means we stay under the cover of His blessing. Under the covering and we can choose to move out from underneath it. Jim and I have been talking quite a bit about small groups, which is something that we desire to begin for the bridge, and places of fellowship and connection. But one of the things that's interesting to me in the way that this church is functioning, it's very free, there's no membership as we've talked about many times, and, and pretty much the realization that hit me a few years back is that um, someone can go to a church and they can have a Bible study in their home and they don't need anybody's permission for it. You don't have to go to the pastor and say, hey, would it be alright with you if I do a Bible study? You can just do one. If you want to. I'm not your ruler. You know, you don't have to go to the elders and get specific permission in written form about the Bible study that you want to have or the small group you want to have. You can just do it. But there is a difference, and Jim has been kind of teaching me this. There is a difference between being a part of, say, the Bridge Christian Fellowship and doing your own thing and being the part of the Bridge Christian Fellowship and being in a small group that is under the covering of this fellowship. Under the covering. If you want to do your own thing, that's fine. You can. Or you can also be a part of a Bible study or a small group or whatever that's under the cover of the bridge. In other words, it's seeking that place of being under the leadership or being under the authority or being under the counsel or the guidance or the wisdom of our shepherds. And there is a difference. We can have small groups and Bible studies galore, but some will be covered and, and some will not, will not be covered, and, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that one, the uncovered ones are bad, but it does mean that if a Bible study is started and, and someone come, comes to the, to the elders or to me and says, hey, I really want some connection here and I'd like to get together with you on occasion and, and talk about this, and I'd like to know that, that this group is being prayed for, you got it. That's covering. And the Lord has covering for us And I like to look at it as this spout where the blessings come out. It's a covering. I am just being covered by the love of the Father. I am living and remaining under the cover of His love. 
Now some people have said about this covering of God's love and the choice to be in it or out of it, they said, well, it's not much of a choice. It's not much of a choice. I either follow God and do things His way or I get sent to hell. What kind of a choice is that? Well, let's consider that for a second. What kind of a choice is that? First of all, understand God did not create hell for you or you for hell. That wasn't part of the plan. Never has been. Hell was created, Matthew 25, 41. Jesus says it was created, it was prepared for the devil and his angels. Not for you, not for me. That's why there's a hell. A place to send those in abject rebellion to the Father. The devil and his angels. But the second thing to consider about this is to choose to do things His way is to walk the path of blessing. It's like a parent saying, I can give you a week's worth of spankings or we can go to Disneyland. Now what child would say, what kind of a choice is that? It's not very fair. I don't want to live under that. You mean, oh, so if I clean my room, you're going to take me to Disneyland and I can spend the week, or I get spankings all week long. I don't think that's a fair choice. I think most kids would go, Really? I'm going to pass on the spankings. I think the Disney trip sounds pretty good. I don't think anyone would even think twice about that. And yet people look at God God, and they say, you give me hell or absolute blessing and love and joy and eternity with you. I don't think that's fair. It amazes me when people do that. What we deserve is what was prepared for the devil and his angels. What God offers is wonderful blessing. Verse 14, he says, You shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. The Lord will remove from you, and this is great, all sickness. He will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but he will lay them all on those who hate you. None of the diseases of Egypt, of Egypt... What is Egypt a picture of in the Bible? The world. And remember, Paul compares Old Testament and New Testament. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, those things are examples for us. Egypt being a picture of the world and is, a, is an example for, this, for us. And there's something spiritual here that's wonderful. The sickness in Egypt, God will keep from you. Now some have said, oh, well, does that mean that if you really are faithful, you'll never get sick? And if you really believe that you can be free from all sickness, and there are those who would take this very passage and teach it, the problem with that is that Paul had a thorn in his side. Some kind of a physical ailment is most likely there. 2 Corinthians 12, 17. Paul had to leave his friend Trophimus sick at Miletus on a missionary journey there. He had to leave him there because he was sick. 1 Timothy 4, 20 tells us. Timothy himself who was strong in the Lord, a strong young pastor, was frequently sick and he had stomach trouble. 1 Timothy 5.23 tells us. Were these people, Paul and Trophimus and Timothy, were these people, were they just faithless in their sickness? Or is there something else going on here? Gang, the point is this. We don't have to be sick like the world. It's not a physical thing we're talking about. It's spiritual In other words, don't walk like an Egyptian. (laughs) Walk as Israel was called to walk. Don't live in the world. Don't be of the world because there's sickness. There's Egyptian sickness there. No, instead, walk the way Israel was called to walk. 1 Corinthians 10.18, Paul said, Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? 
That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And in another place, Paul even says, there are those of you who are mistaking the Lord's Supper, communion, and you're getting sick because of it. Really? Because they were mishandling? That's what Paul said. Some of you are getting sick and some of you are dying, and he directly tied it in to the way they were taking communion. That should sober us up a bit on Sunday morning. Avoid the degrading diseases of Egypt. That is the sickness of the culture. As John says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, that is the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It is from the world. And the world is passing away, also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You want to be free, protected from the sickness of Egypt, the disease of sin? It's simple. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. You stay under the spout where the blessings come out. Verse 16, you shall consume, God says, all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. And your eyes shall not pity them. Nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Now, if you should say in your heart, These nations are greater than I. How can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, and the signs and the wonders, and the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them, until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Listen, don't be afraid, God says. When you look at the size of the people saying to Israel when you see their massive armies don't fear them don't say they're huge and we're small that's what their father said 40 years earlier we're like grasshoppers how can grasshoppers defeat giants we can't go up against them and their hearts fail but then when our hearts begin to fail God says don't give in to fear don't succumb to fear so how do I do that spiritually in my life how do I not succumb to fear when things are hard when life is difficult, three easy ways you remember, first of all, of all, what he's already done. It's been said that fear is not a lack of faith as much as it is a loss of memory. It's not that I don't have faith, it's just I've forgotten what God did last week, or two months ago, or six years ago, or 20 years ago in my life. If I could remember the great movement of the Lord the powerful acts of the Father throughout my lifetime, if I could remember, I could have that faith. Remember what He's already done. And remember the Lord says, perfect love casts out fear. God's perfect love, gang, is what dominates the landscape of my memory. And it can dominate my challenges and even my sin today. Remember what He's done. Also, secondly, recognize His immediate presence with you. Jesus says at the end of the Great Commission, Hey, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age, which is where I believe we're at. 
At the very end of the age, I'm right there. Hebrews 13.5 tells us, He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You might say, well, life is hard and difficult, and I don't understand. It seems like He's deserted me. Well, you're not standing under the spout anymore. You've wandered off somewhere. The spout's still there. The blessings are still flowing. The love of God is still available to you. Get back under the spout. Get back into that place where the Lord would have you. Hebrew writer says, We confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So remember what he's done. Recognize his presence with you. You might say, Well, I want my life problems to be wiped out right now. Well, listen. Third thing to do is to refer to what he says he is about to do. Remember what he's done. Recognize he is with you and refer to what he says he is going to do. Now hold that thought for a second because verse 20 there's an interesting little comment about the hornet here. Moreover the Lord your God will send the hornet against them. And I kind of wondered what was this all about? It's a little hornet shopping in the scriptures in Exodus 23-28 tells us I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you I'm going to send hornets and there are those who believe that what this was a picture of was the Egyptian army or some other massive army that God was going to send in to kind of thin out the armies Israel would come up against but he just referred to them as hornets others think it's literal I think it's literal I think it's exactly what it says. God sent hornets ahead of the people of Israel. And the hornets infested the land, infested the areas of the Hittites and the Canaanites, and it drove them out. Hornets everywhere. It'd drive me out. <laughs> I'd be gone in a heartbeat. I think it's literal, but the point is this. Now listen, this is important. Deep theological thinking here from Pastor Rick. When it comes to God's promises of what he is about to do, believe him. Okay. Joshua 24 verse 12 looking back now at what God promised in Exodus in Exodus he said I will send in Joshua 24 he says then I sent past tense the hornet before you and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you not by your sword or your bow so we saw that it did happen God said he was going to do it God did it and God says remember when I did that And that's the process of not living in fear. To remember what he's done, to remember he is with us right now, but also to refer to what he says he is going to do. We can believe him to do what he says he's about to do as though he's already done it. This is the greatness of God. The story is told about a pastor, G. Campbell Morgan, a great theologian of the past century, and he was teaching literally on these verses in Deuteronomy. And closing his sermon on Deuteronomy 7, he said, Is this not a most wonderful promise for you and for me? And when he was done teaching, he went back to the back of the church, as he often did, and two sisters came up to him on their way out of the church. And they said to him, Pastor Morgan, that verse is not a promise. Which verse? Verse 21. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. That verse is not a promise, Pastor Morgan. They said, it's a reality. And he was stunned. And he said, how true. This isn't a promise. It's the truth. 
It's not that which can be or might be. It's that which absolutely is. And as we refer to what God is going to do in our lives, it's a done deal. It is already promised, guaranteed to happen. Philippians 1.6 I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. It is to be. It's happening. You can refer to that when sin is being really obnoxious. You can refer to that when life is hard. You can refer to that when your heart starts to fail and you're worried and you're concerned about what you're going to do to get through tomorrow. Refer to what he says he's about to do. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. And as I've said before, God has been there. God is here and he will be there. So do not be afraid. Verse 22. Then the Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. And this is an important point. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly. For the wild beasts will grow too numerous for you. Little by little. This is not how I want God to work in my life. I don't know about you, but little by little doesn't work for me. I want much by much. I want great by great. I want massive wiping out quickly. I want it done and I want it behind me today so that I can enjoy the fruit of God's labor. I don't want it little by little. I don't want it to take time. I want to put the energy and the effort into this, Lord. Can't you just wipe out sin? Can't you just come more quickly? And we miss this fantastic process. A couple of things here. Practically... Practically, the people would be driven out little by little for Israel's sake because if they were suddenly driven out of the land, the land itself, God says, would be overrun by the animals. You take the humanity of that region and just wipe them out real fast and you wouldn't be able to handle all of the beasts moving in and taking over. So it's a practical statement for the people of Israel. I'm going to move them out little by little for you so as you take the land they're moving out. It's kind of like... I guess a little bit what they're trying to do in Lebanon right now. Try to bring the Lebanese army in and move Israel out slowly and not leave a a gap there that Hezbollah could could fill. Same idea. I'm going to drive them out a little at a time practically so the beasts don't overrun the land. But gang, spiritually we see something great here and I want you to turn to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. And this... This point for tonight, this, to me, this is worth the whole study. This is huge. Because spiritually we see something great here. It's a passage, a, a parable we've looked at actually somewhat recently, but I looked at it again this week. And I want you to hear this. Matthew thirteen twenty four. Jesus is telling the parable of the tares. And he says the following, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. That sounds great. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Now track this. This is a description of the kingdom. Verse 26, when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Then how does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. 
The slave said to him, Would well, you want us then to go and gather them up? And he said, No, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares, and bind them in bundles, and burn them up, and gather the wheat gather the wheat into my barn. Now some quick farming notes on this. Number one, tares have the same color and the same shape and the same smell as wheat. They look like wheat. The difference is they don't produce any fruit. You don't get anything out of a tear. You don't get that stalk of wheat at the end of a tear. Secondly, tares soak up nutrients in the soil. They take the nutrients that should be going into the wheat. They pull it away. And thirdly, tares steal away space in the field. The more tares, the less wheat can grow. And so the wheat gets strangled and pushed out. It takes up room. And thirdly, tares are typically subversive until the harvest time. They're secretive. Until you go out to harvest and find out you've got all these weeds out there. And so Jesus says, leave the tares. And I say, God, I don't want the tares left in my life. I want to rip them out. I don't want the tares in, in the body. I want them ripped out. I don't want the tares in the Christian community. I want them torn out. You know the tares I'm talking about. It's all those so-called Christians that you hear on radio or see on TV or see in books and you go, man, they're heretics. I want them ripped out. And God says, you've got to leave the tares until the harvest. The tares and the wheat, they are going to grow up together. And the reason I bring this parable back up again is I believe there's a pointed prophetic statement for the last day's church. Watch this. The next parable he tells, two little short ones. Verse 31, he says, he presented another parable to them. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. This is smaller than all other seeds, but when it's full grown... Now it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and they nest in its branches. And many have concluded from this parable, and I think it's wrong, that what this is saying is the kingdom of heaven starts small and gets massive. That the kingdom of heaven starts small and gets really big. It, it's, it's a miraculous, supernatural, wonderful growth. I think what's going on here is abnormal growth with this mustard seed abnormal yes because the mustard plant itself it resembles a spindly little plant hardly capable of supporting birds have you ever seen a picture of a mustard plant it doesn't make a big gaping tree it's not like those trees in Hawaii what are those things called the banya trees there's a whole park near Lahaina in, uh, on Maui that's got a banya tree that has covered the entire park it's huge that's not what a mustard tree looks like it looks like a little weed. It's spindly and, and it normally doesn't grow very big at all. They grow all over northern Israel and they're tiny little mustard plants. They're just not that big. And Jesus is describing something to a farming people that is unusual. It is abnormal. And this growth is abnormal. Furthermore, the birds of the air come and they nest in its branches. And the birds in scriptures, I pointed out in this farm before, tend to be pictures of evil and wickedness, not good things. The birds are unclean. Revelation 18.2 says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. So the birds in Scripture tend to be, they're unclean, they're pictures of evil. And they're nesting in the branches of this 
mustard tree that shouldn't be growing big enough to even house one little bird. Birds don't nest in the leaves. But more compelling that this is a negative parable is where it's placed, right after the tares and the wheat, and right before the next parable, which is also mistakenly interpreted. Verse 33 says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid three pecks of flour, hid it in there until it was all leavened. And a Jewish person knows very well that leaven is a picture of sin. It is always and only related to sin in the Bible. Those who would say, hey, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, and so wonderfully, it's positive, big growth. That's not what leaven describes. Leaven gets his fingers into everything. And God says to the Jewish people, you take the leaven out of the house for the feast of unleavened bread. There shouldn't be a speck because it is a picture of sin. So you've got the wheat and the tares, and then you've got the mustard seed, and then you've got the leaven. These three parables, one right after the other, all three of them, I believe, have a negative depiction of the kingdom. Now, why is that important? For this reason. Those who would be proponents of kingdom now theology will miss this. Dominion theology, it's often called. It's the theology, and it's even now tracking back to this kind of whole post-millennial theology that the church is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and greater and we're going to dominate the world and then Christ will come. After we have completed the mission and we're going to hand it over to Him as mayors handing Him the keys to the city, we're going to say, didn't we do a great job, Lord? Look, we fought the battle and we won for You. And the Bible indicates completely otherwise, gang. As we read in the Scriptures, what do we see happening at the church in the last days? We see false prophets, false teachers, and we see apostasy. And we see a lot of negatives. Well, this is real positive. Thanks a lot for bringing this up tonight, Rick. Listen, we need to understand what God is doing and how He is working among us. God is at work in you. He is at work in me. And I say, I wish He would move faster. You say, it's so hard to wait. I know it is. We say, Lord, we're ready to be done with it all right now. And the Lord says, I'm going to increase your territory little by little. Little by little. Listen to this verse. And this the second time we taught through Revelation, just, just having finished it. It spun me around. I didn't see this the first time. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. God says, I know your deeds. And by the way, he's speaking to Philadelphia, which is a last day's church. It's the church that we are a part of today, either Philadelphia or Laodicea. Take your pick. I hope it's Philadelphia. But he says, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power. You have a little power. You have little strength. You're not huge and powerful and monstrous and great. You have little strength. And you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Gang, if the enemies, the tares, the leaven, if they were driven out all at once, immediately another enemy will overtake the land, or in this case the church. If they were driven out all at once, it would create space for Israel, it was the beast. For us, it could be the beast. As a matter of fact, that's exactly a picture of what happens. The Bible talks about the church being raptured. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2 Paul says hey the restraining influence is right now keeping the devil keeping Antichrist at bay but what happens the restraining influence is taken out all at once and the beast infiltrates the church and there will be by the way a church in the last days a church in the tribulation a one world church based on foundations that are laid right now the beast will take control we however are coming into the new land little by little faith by faith and that is a Jesus prophecy for the end times church don't be discouraged but don't be led astray into believing that we will achieve some false sense of greatness in our own spiritual power if you feel weak that's because you are if you feel little it's because we are if you feel like you just have a little strength it's because that's what you've got but praise God that little strength that little power that smallness is massive in the work of the Spirit our weakness is perfected in His strength or vice versa His strength in our weakness now back to Deuteronomy verse 23 we'll finish up but the Lord your God will deliver them before you and he will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed that's a promise for Israel I believe a promise for us today we have little strength but God is doing his work and he will throw them into confusion he will deliver their kings into your hand so that you will make their name perish from under heaven no man will be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them and God would say to you and to me that's the process I've got you in and no man can stand against it no man can stand against what I am doing verse 25 Moses says the graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire you shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them nor take it for yourselves or you will be snared by it for it is an abomination to the Lord your God you shall not bring an abomination into your house and like it come under the ban you shall utterly detest it and you shall utterly abhor it for it is something banned that word banned is harem in the Hebrew it literally means a cursed thing or something devoted to destruction and there are some things in our lives that are simply devoted to destruction things that in the short term might seem good they might seem helpful they might seem like a way to help the kingdom along to grow the kingdom but in the long term these things are going to be destroyed Barb and I were talking just briefly right before we started tonight and she raised an interesting question I won't go into all of it with you but, but it got me thinking again even during worship about how churches pursue the idea of purpose statements and mission statements and vision statements and all these statements and making sure that we have written down what we are about and that's not necessarily a bad thing however what I've seen over the years in ministry myself every time I've gotten involved with that is what it does it doesn't define us it limits us it limits what the Father wants to do in and through us now when someone says to me hey Rick what's the mission statement of the bridge it's in here <laughs> and I'm not going to lay it out in a single sentence for you I'm not going to give it that clearly why not shouldn't we have some direction hey we have direction it's from the spirit and I want to have the freedom as we were talking about before I want us to have the freedom to move the direction God calls us to move when he calls us to move and not to be limited well we came up with that mission statement 10 years ago and by golly we're going to fulfill it what if the Lord's over here now what if he's doing this thing now I said what if what if all of a sudden God put it on the hearts of the shepherds and on my heart he said 
I want you to drop everything you're doing and focus 100% on missions in this season. That's what I want for the church. What if we had that sense, but well, we're not a missions church. We're a worship church. We're worship people. That's what we do. So we can't do that. Sorry, Lord, you're going to have to find another church to do your work. Or do we remain free for the Father to do what He wants to do? There are all kinds of things that seem good at the time, but may ultimately be short-term little things that are devoted to destruction. They're not going to get us anywhere. Paul puts it this way, 1 Corinthians 3.11, he says, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We have a foundation. It's Jesus. We have a mission statement. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Teaching them to observe, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to to observe all that I've commanded you. We have a mission statement. Jesus gave it to us. We have a purpose. Love God. Love people. It's that simple. And we stay focused on these things. Paul says, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, he's implying good things. He says, or wood, hay, and straw, things which burn. He says, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And I don't want my work to be harem, banned, devoted to destruction. I want the work that I'm involved with and I pray the work that we're involved with as a fellowship to be kingdom work that is gold and silver and precious stones, things that last in the fire. Things that last when the enemy comes up against us when God delivers us over, delivers them into our hands, we have the power to defeat. And so, Jesus says in His words, while we wrangle and figure and, and try and consider logistics and work it all out so that we can be the church we're supposed to be, Jesus says, don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. You have it. It's in your midst. You're a part of it. So go take the land. Father, we need your strength to do this. We need an increase of our faith and our trust in you. And Lord, we just need to be a people who are listening. And as I've prayed since we began, Lord, would you keep our ears wide open to the words of your Spirit. Will you keep our eyes, while fixed on Jesus, also fixed on your word, that we might understand what you're saying to us. That we might not go off the deep end in some weird area. That's what your word's there. It, it, it keeps us on that path, Father. But help us to listen. Help us to go in. And to not be afraid. Thank you so much, Jesus, for your word. I pray that you bless us. With these words tonight, in Jesus' name, amen.